Hi, I'm Judith Zoe. Welcome to The Digital Period. The Digital Period is a public philosophy project where I, Judith, examine our relationship with technology by taking a closer look at period apps. I'm a philosopher and lawyer based in the Netherlands, and I have been working on digital policy for almost 10 years. Last episode, I talked to four philosophers who shared their thoughts on autonomy, technology, and privacy. Marjolein Lansing, assistant professor of the University of Amsterdam, explained a thing or two about autonomy. Autonomy is deeply relational, and that it consists of all these types of social dimensions that are important to take into account. And that if you want to research autonomy, it's not only about self-control, but it's also about recognition, about being socially recognized, about self-respect, about uh, social relationships that uh, constitute who you are and that give meaning to your life and that also enable you to lead an autonomous life that's meaningful. And that there might also be, that depends on how strong you want to make this account, but that there might be social conditions for leading a free or autonomous life, and that that actually would require a lot of uh, societal changes in order for you to do so. In this episode, I focus on my third and last question. How can we move forward and build a feminist future with technology that fits our values? And what does that mean for period apps? For this episode, I got to travel to Berlin. Taking the relational understanding of autonomy into account, I was looking to talk to developers who were actively thinking about how to translate values into the different features of their period app. But developers had also understood that an app cannot fix everything. And I wanted to talk to people who were working on improving the social conditions we live in that impact how we relate to technology. My first conversation in this episode is with Marie Korsrik, co-founder and developer of Drip. In 2023, Drip won their Digital Autonomy Award and they won the Pizigati Prize for Software in the Public Interest. I emailed Drip and Marie was happy to talk to me. She welcomed me into her home in Berlin, where we talked about why and how she created Drip. There were some audio challenges recording this conversation. Among many things, there were people doing construction outside the building. I am a DIY podcaster on the go without a studio, so you will probably hear this a bit in the background. In the second part of this episode, you will hear my conversation with Elisa Lindinger, one of the founders of SuperLab, based in Berlin, a lab for feminist futures where they work on advocating for a feminist digital policy, among the many other things they do. But first, meet Marie. My name is Marie Kochsig and I studied originally social science and Latin American studies and then I decided to start learning to program here in Berlin with a few communities like the Rails Girls Berlin but also other communities and then yeah I became a software programmer and that's where I am still. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but it, sound, it sounds really hard to become a software programmer and you make it now sound very easy. Yes, I think um, part of the, uh, there is this idea that programming is really hard. And this was also how I started, or this was, I guess, why I started so late with this. Mm -hmm. 
And I think it's, I see it problematic that um, so many people perceive tech and programming as being such a hard thing. Part of it, I think, is that some people who do programming, they love that other people think <laughs> their job is super hard and nobody else can do it. Mm -hmm. And I think the communities that I was in and also became active myself, now the Heart of Code, which is a feminist tech space here in Berlin, we are really trying to kind of lower down this barrier which much of the time is really much more like a mental barrier than it is kind of a thing. But I think if people are curious about it, if people want to know a bit more about it, you also don't have to become a full-time programmer. Mm -hmm. But I really encourage people who are interested and who think, oh, they want to learn a bit about it, to start doing it and to start doing it ideally in communities, groups of people where you feel safe mm -hmm. to ask questions, safe to be a newbie and uh, safe to learn together, to have fun, not just for making money, but also to just learn something. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And how did you go from there to developing a period app? Yes, it kind of goes a bit hand in hand because um, I was still studying, so I was still enrolled in my master's degree. And I needed to find a master's, like a topic for the final thesis. And then I thought, okay, I can use social sciences. I mean, it's social science is amazing. I highly recommend studying this. And I wanted to kind of combine it with a, like a, a technical question or yeah, something. I was really like searching, thinking like what could be a good topic that combines like the social aspect of technology and then this topic of period apps came up and then I thought, oh, this is amazing. This is a f I can even have a feminist perspective on it. I can uh, talk to people about the experience of, of bodies, sexual health. These were all topics where I thought, this is amazing. This is my topic. And once I had it, it was after a lunch uh, meeting with a friend. I came up with this idea and was like, per I knew in this moment, this is the perfect topic. So I started doing interviews with people who were using period apps and I asked them kind of social scientist questions. Mm -hmm. no? Why do you use it? How do you feel about it? It was about the subjective experience of menstruation when using period apps. And it was quite interesting because it was already like a wide range of experiences. I was really fascinated by it. I did 10 interviews, which is not a lot, mm -hmm. qualitative interviews. And, and they were really like different people with so many different, like also levels of knowledge about their bodies. And yeah, it, it stayed with me. These like all the f kind of also the feedback or the implicit feedback I, I learned from these interviews about uh, what is good about an app, what is bad about an app, what can go well, what can go wrong. And then at some point talking about this work, I was really also interested in sharing this work, which I didn't like at the university that many people are very much like, oh, this is just for the university. Mm -hmm. So I was really trying to kind of push the topic <laughs> and go out. And so I also talked a lot about this topic to other people outside of the university. And there was one person who said like, so why don't you develop your own app, mm -hmm. this, uh, an own period app? And from there again, it uh, grew a bit this idea. And then 2017, I was looking for people to, to apply for a fund together, which was the prototype fund. And from there, then it really became a thing where we had like six months of focused time uh, to work on a prototype, which is what we did. Mm -hmm. And this is where it kind of started. Yeah. 
you said you started out learning how to code in these feminist spaces, and I would also call your app a feminist app. I don't know if you call it. A, yeah, that as well. Yes, very much. Yeah. <laughs> uh, what does that mean to you? Why? Why would you use that word? Yeah, it's a good. It's a good question. I think, um, of course, feminism can mean many things to many people. I think one aspect is surely that we try to be gender neutral, aware of different identities also different life stages, uh, different sexual orientation, different sexual behavior, which kind of comes with this idea that there's like different use cases. And this can change. This can, of course, apply to just different people we're dealing with or we're offering this app to. But there's also, if I use the app today, in five years, I'm a different person. What we found is that... Um, Many apps focus on heterosexual cis women who are in a committed monogamous relationship. Mm -hmm. And then if they track, for example, if they track sex, it's either for the becoming pregnant or getting pregnant and or uh, for avoiding pregnancy. Mm -hmm. And I think <laughs> I mean, it sounds a bit simple, but there's many who have sex that doesn't lead to pregnancy mm -hmm. for whatever reason. There's people who don't identify as women and who bleed. So mm -hmm. these are just like realities mm -hmm. that um, many apps, they just like don't take it into account, which of course leads also to a certain type of features they're going to implement and other features they will not even think about. Then, of course, it's also this for me, this feminist tech means also that it's creating a safe space, a technical, a digital safe space, mm -hmm. which in our case means there's a local storage only. There is no cloud. There's no data being shared with anyone. So this means that you have this app and uh, you can rely on it being on your device. So the data that you are tracking with the app is your data and it's never shared with anyone else. So this agency for the user. And I think the other part is also like, which is still a surprise to me always, to see that most of the period apps are developed by people who don't bleed, mm -hmm. who don't experience menstrual cycles. And it shows. Mm -hmm. Many apps have a focus on, or they offer a partner app to the as a feature. It's probably because you are the partner developing for this uh, period, for, for this for the yeah. for your partner that is having a period. So I think there's like many aspects that show or don't show that an app is kind of developed with feminist ideas in mind. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay, so you wanted to make a period app, but how do you make a period app or a menstrual app, as you call it? Like, how does that work? We started with like ideas. We started also by looking at the existing app at that time in 2017 and to not reinvent the wheel and to be like, okay, these are features that are working well. We also did some surveys asking people, okay, what are the features that you really need? What are like features that may be nice to have? And then we came up with like, yeah, I guess like a basic set of features we wanted to have from the, from the get-go. And then I think it shows a bit over time who is working on the app, um, because then we have the feature of the symptothermal method, which is the fertility awareness method that you can use, uh, which came from Julia Friesel, which was like a user of this method already for a long time. And she was pitching this, that this is kind of a reliable method. And we were like, okay, amazing, let's do it. Um, then another person who came up with, okay, we need some statistics, we need to have this uh, on in the app. 
and then we had a redesign happening. So I think the app is also kind of highly impacted or framed by the people who are working on it, which is nice to see mm -hmm. different fresh, I guess, ideas who come into the app. And then, yeah, as we are usually working on it in our spare time, we try to come together from time to time. We try to also work asynchronously. I think for me, what I wasn't expecting at the beginning that it can take time for developing it because I thought, okay, this is technology. It needs to be fast. You need to be, you know, you need to be kind of release an app rather early because otherwise people will lose interest or will just like switch and use another app. And I think what I learned is that people who want to use the app, they're happy about having this app and they're patient with us. And how did you deal with the diversity of needs, especially in the beginning and deciding what you're going to include and what you're not going to include? I'm quite happy with the with the status quo of like the safety aspect, the fertility awareness method, the statistics, um, the period for our predictions. I think that's a very solid kind of app that we're already having. So uh, I can sleep well at night. I think the challenging part is so in general, working on it is to do all the maintenance work and all the work that is um I wasn't aware of this, but if you, I mean, technology is constantly evolving and developing and we're constantly, we're also used to getting a new update. This means that in general, like apps or the internet is like changing. <laughs> this may sound very simple, but this uh, implies that everybody who has an app on Google Play Store or on the Apple App Store needs to constantly maintain and see that um, because what's happening with all the apps is that we're building our app on top of other people's work no this is like we're using libraries from other people for the storage for how notifications work how a calendar works this is nice because we don't have to kind of reinvent the wheel and start from scratch but this also means that we need to kind of update all these also so-called dependencies and libraries all the time and for me this is a big pain <laughs> um, because this is not very like nice juicy work it's just like I need to click and wait and see if it works you know it's a bit behind the scenes also it's not mm -hmm. something that I can say oh I today I <laughs> updated a dependency and people are like do I see it in my in, in the app no there's nothing new it's just it's still there uh -huh. so you need to kind of keep it alive uh, another thing that I really love about Drift that you are very approachable and that you there are different ways that you kind of allow people using the app to contact you or contribute to the app uh, can you explain why why you do that? Because it also must take a lot of time. I think uh, for me personally, I enjoyed a lot talking about the topic. That's kind of where I started or I started talking about the topic before I started co-founding and programming this app. So for me, this is maybe as important as the app itself to talk about this because there are so many topics that can be touched. And I really like also um, that you can talk to people, to techies, <laughs> who are maybe a bit shy to talk about menstrual or sexual health. You can kind of yeah, invade really like and that. talk about... Yeah. Yes, exactly. Yeah, you have the same yeah. experience. Yeah. And the other way around. You can also talk about uh, to people who are very happy and feel comfortable talking about sexual menstrual health. And then you talk about technology mm -hmm. also. I love this kind of intersectional possibility when talking about menstrual apps. Yeah. yeah, I think it's also a really important precondition for co-creation and also for accountability. 
that you're visible and actually responsive human yes. behind the app. And yeah. I have to say, maybe somebody now who's listening, who sent us an email and never got a response, this also <laughs> happens. I'm sorry for that. I wish I would uh, remember every um, email and request. And your app is open source and you're not for profit. Maybe can you say a little bit about those two things? Yeah, also for me, very yeah. feminist values, mm -hmm. open source and, and not-for-profit or non-commercial. I think um, there's amazing products that are commercial. That's amazing. That's super good. I think there's some products and some apps which I feel are much better off when they're non-commercial. I guess like the whole health sector for me ideally remains or stays or becomes non-commercial. Because if people seek uh, medical advice or support in aspects of their health, I don't think it's a good idea to have anyone with commercial interest kind of taking part in this. It's also a privilege to develop non-commercially and to develop without getting money. That's also very, want to make it very clear. I'm not the first one who's saying this, but I really agree on that point. Um, you need to have the privilege to have the time, the resources to do this, which we have. And the other aspect of the open source, what you said, is basically open source means that um, kind of the plan of the program is transparent. You can find it online. If you're curious about it, uh, check it out. But the data stays private. So this is also really important. Sometimes it's a bit uh, confusing to people who hear this. But uh, yeah, it's basically like if you think about uh, making a pizza, the recipe of the pizza is transparent. And it's, on the, it's online to see but then uh, the pizza itself is yours. It stays private. And uh, that's kind of a bit maybe the analogy. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And you made this app with two other people. I think maybe it's good to mention who they are and what they are doing. Yes. So the team changed over time a bit. So we started with Julia Friesel and uh, Tina Baumann. And then uh, later Maria um, and Sophia joined. Sophia Tepikin and Maria Zatneplianets joined. The team, there's also another person, there's also another person. So some people joined for a longer period. Uh, some people kind of contribute in a, in a smaller way or they design one aspect of the app. Yeah, I love it. Thank you. Thank you so much for this conversation. I really enjoyed it. Yeah, thanks a lot. <laughs> uh, me too. Yeah, I enjoyed your questions. Thanks. <laughs> I really love talking to Marie. After the interview, I told her that when I started out this project, I thought that I would need to talk to three kinds of people. People that use these apps, academics that research these apps, and developers that build period apps. But the further I got, the more I realized often the people that I was talking to were checking most of these boxes. And obviously, Marie is the perfect example. Looking ahead, I hope that this will be a standard or norm. Being part of all of these groups makes it easier to understand how to translate certain values into features of an app. It also creates a personal incentive to be conscious and deliberate about the choices you are making. My next conversation is with Elisa from Superlab. Before I interviewed Elisa, I was already welcomed into their space a month earlier. Ryan, who is featured in the first episode, and their partner Joe and I used their space to hold a workshop on querying the quantified self, where we critically examine self-tracking technologies and the politics they are built upon. A month later, I returned to interview Elisa, co-founder of Superlab, to talk about how she helped build a feminist organization that works, among many things, on advocating for feminist digital policy in Europe.
Hi everyone, I'm Elisa, Elisa Lindinger. I'm part of the founding duo of Superlab. We are a lab for feminist digital futures and um, I haven't worked forever in tech. I originally am an archaeologist, so I'm really good oh, at really? digging holes. If that's ever of use to you, uh, ring me up. How did you go from being an archaeologist to being the founder of Superlab? Um, I mean, there were a few years in between. Um, the short story is, I guess, that there really aren't that many jobs in archaeology. <laughs> so, um, I mean, you have to at some point ask yourself, like, what, what way do you want to take in your life and, and what are the goals that you want to work towards? Um, but archaeology actually is, like, at least some parts of archaeology are a data-driven science. Mm. So from data-driven um, work, um, building databases, doing statistics, it's not that far to moving on to open source because obviously we also didn't have any money for like the proper and the uh -huh. cool tools. So we had to use open source and make it work. And here I am. Maybe you can explain a little bit more what Superlab does. Mm -hmm. uh, and then my question is, why was Superlab necessary? Mm -hmm. Why did you create this new organization? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So. Um, as I said, I did work with open source technologies, I was interested in open data and sharing data and sharing information and that was super interesting to me and super appealing to me, but uh, what I did not like that much about the whole open movement mm -hmm. is that it's often seen as sufficient, you know, like for me yeah. openness is kind of a prerogative, it's like mm -hmm. a box you have to check. But it's not enough. It's not a it's not a use in itself. Mm -hmm. If that makes sense, mm -hmm. especially if you talk about social justice, if we talk about inclusion and participation, if we really mean it, yeah. just providing potential access doesn't really change things for many people. Yeah. So and this really pushed Julia, my co-founder, and myself towards trying to learn from what we did in this open movement but to add certain practices and ways of working and ways of collaborating. Um, yeah, to put that into practice and uh, try to, you know, push a little further than just mm -hmm. for open data, just for open source. Yeah. And that is really why we funded Superlab, um, I guess, part of the story. And the other story, if I'm really honest, is because we also really wanted to try whether we can make this thing lift off, you know? Like, you always work in environments that are designed and conceptualized by others mm -hmm. and what would a space look like that we ourselves can but also kind of have to design mm -hmm. and that that is still an interesting challenge to yeah honest. that's super cool yeah i didn't realize as much that you were coming from the open movement i also come from the open movement i fully agree with your reflections on that yeah and so how do you create an organization that's built on feminist principles and that works on tech policy Yes, so I, I guess I, I can only repeat myself, it is, it is an ongoing process and I'm not sure we've figured out any part of it entirely, which makes sense, right? Because we haven't uh -huh. solved the problems no, yet, so no. I think we're head over heels in the middle. For us, being a feminist organization is like, yes, like we want to be activists, but there are a few shared understandings I think that we also try to spell out a bit more clearly mm -hmm. as we go because many things that we do is kind of they're kind of implicit there might be even like wrong conceptions that we carry in ourselves and like we get called out by others and that is important that we keep up that kind of culture where we can do that and where we can learn and grow together I think that is essential 
So I think that is really um, the mo at, at the core of building a feminist organization, always reflect on why you're doing it and, and how it impacts people. Mm -hmm. And the second biggest thing would be, and I see that often, that whether we work on technology or whether we work on policy, advocacy, whatever, we can't, we are beyond the point where we can do that alone, mm -hmm. be it alone as an organization or alone as an individual. We need to work together. You can't build technology that works for a specific audience, even if you're a part of that audience, mm -hmm. but you can't just figure it out all by yourself. And the same is true, I think, for policy. Yeah. The recommendations that I come up with, uh, others might criticize them, and rightly so. So we have to have this conversation. We have to like discuss things early, test them together, and really find this kind of collaborative but critical spirit to, to move forwards and um, to actually make our work count in that way because otherwise it's just maybe not good enough. Mm -hmm. How do you include different voices mm -hmm. when forming your position as an organization? Mm -hmm. I mean, first of all, that is part of not just me doing stuff but building an organization where we can employ people and pay all of us a living. I mean, yeah. I guess, you know, like we all have this capitalist system that we're working in and we <laughs> yeah. have to pay our rent and we have to pay for our food. So, mm -hmm. I mean, there there is a clear limit to these idealistic notions because we have to manage this kind of This, this kind of gap mm -hmm. of values that we are always confronted with, those that we want to see in the world and those that are there in the mm -hmm. world. I think building an organization is the first part. Um, we also, I think there are few projects that we do that we do on our own. I think actually it's we, do, we just don't do projects on our own. We always invite people as freelancers to um, either critique the work that we do or to just, you know, bring their perspective to the table and write in the frame or, like, or on the platforms that we create to like maybe showcase their voices in circumstances where they themselves are not at because it's not their focus of work, mm -hmm. because their resources are limited as well. So I think there's several factors that contribute to that. It's not just power imbalances. We just can't dance on every party out there. So we try to yeah. try to spread the word in a way and also connect people with each other to then themselves start collaborating. And I mean, part of that is also providing the space that we have. So we have a physical office here in Berlin mm -hmm. um, that is, I mean, it's, it's tiny, but it's a little space. And like you came over mm -hmm. with Ryan and the others too, mm -hmm. um, to have that workshop. Like that is really uh, what we want to see. Like, mm -hmm. you know, just people making use of the stuff that we can provide. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's super important also because everyone I've spoken to, especially the ones who are not working in policy, are thinking about policy. Uh, so yeah, I think it's really great that you're trying to facilitate kind of that process as well, like bridging people who do something within university or activists, mm -hmm. individual activists or just someone who has an idea. Mm -hmm. uh, another thing I really wanted to talk to you about was intersectional feminism. Yes. Maybe you can first explain what you think it should mean or what it means to you mm -hmm. of course we often question whether we are whether you can call yourself a feminist i mean that's <laughs> even a, like you know it, the problem starts right there like mm -hmm. can you be a feminist or isn't feminism like inherently a form of action mm -hmm. um, for us intersectional feminism draws from feminist discourse from feminist methods and values so care, transparency, collaboration, um, providing access, you know, like these things mm -hmm. are like in there. But 
maybe that relates to the point of the of the open movement like i think that is important to have mm -hmm. but when you enact that you can act enact that very seclusively or very very partial like partially but if you add intersectionality as a lens to what you do you start refusing to work on these pigeonholes in mm -hmm. a way so for example we get asked often like a lot whether we can talk about uh, women in the sector x And I guess we kind of could, but we don't really want to. Mm -hmm. Because what are we talking about? A specific problem. We kind of highlight a specific problem and leave many others out there. And I think that is really what intersectionality does. It, it gives you a tool to refuse to break down this huge debate that we really need to have as mm -hmm. a society um, and not focus on very particular problems and fix things for a few And then being proud about it. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah, makes so sense. So for me, like we are yeah. not philosophers, so yeah. I'm, I may be lacking the kind of. <laughs> no, um, we're doing a great job. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I mean, you know, like it's uh, like I always wonder, like how do these big words translate into action? Mm -hmm. And for me, it's really that, even if it's a very rough definition. Yeah. No, I like that one. Yeah, I also think. I mean, I think intersectional feminism is really important, but I also rarely use the word, because for a lot of people it doesn't mean anything so then it's for communication it's not the most helpful word yes. what i also find challenging about this is to be able to speak clarity and to make choices about what you do and what you don't do mm -hmm. um, and to make complex problems accessible without simplifying them mm -hmm. to provide solutions with the awareness that they don't solve everything that's really hard And uh, yeah, I was wondering if you, how you handle that part. I think the part of our work that relates most to, to mm -hmm. what, you, what you just outlined is the advocacy work that we do or policy advocacy work that we do. We try to get tech policy out of this kind of innovation economic framework. Mm and reposition it in a more like a, a social policy approach because this is really what it is mm -hmm. like we always talk about oh technology is pervading like every bit of our lives well then it's obviously not about economics anymore right yeah um, so we have to to spell that out and we have to really analyze whether the regulation that we do or the incentives that we create pay into that or like you know like follow mm -hmm. this thematic shift in a way What we try to do is, it's really towing the line with this feminist tech policy or feminist digital policy, whatever you want to call it. Because like you can have these kind of high level concepts of, yeah, it should be social policy, but what does that mean? Mm -hmm. So we try to look at specific um, tech policy files that are out there right now and find out in what ways they fail to to be feminist or what kind of fallacies they are built upon. And one that we come across every time again and again is this technology as the silver bullet mm -hmm. that magically solves mm -hmm. all the problems. That is just so pervasive, like everywhere, like mm -hmm. on every level of, of policy making, I believe. I also understand that policymakers are getting tired of civil society saying, well, this doesn't work. And they are like they are desperately looking for a way out and, mm -hmm. and a solution. So they are very solution oriented people, I think. Um, so how can we how can we make them understand this? And I think this is about telling different stories and not just saying, well, it would help a group X. Mm -hmm. um, but we can also highlight, well, yes, but it would also hurt a group Y. And we need to take both of these things mm -hmm. into account. 
what we are trying to argue for is like because we have all this talk about risk assessments right now, like in the in the European files, in the DSA, in the Digital Services Act, in, in the Artificial Intelligence Act. Um, but risk assessments meant in a in like in a legal way or like in an economic way, like a personal liability thing. But what do these things actually do to the power imbalances of our society? Like mm -hmm. we don't even have the questions mm -hmm. to ask to figure out what they do to us. So I think we need to kind of make create this kind of awareness and then figure out together which questions we need to ask um, to make tech policy counterbalance power inequalities. Mm -hmm. That was super meta. Yeah, maybe about the meta thing, I see what I find myself doing very often is either becoming a little bit more like wary, like be aware, is this going to be bad? Mm -hmm. uh, because it's a very clear message, which actually I don't want to give that message because technology will not solve anything, but technology can solve things. <laughs> and it's difficult to communicate the difference between those two to a solution to all, to a solution for something. Also for me, this project, one of the reasons I wanted to do this is because I wanted to do something that I felt was very positive. Mm -hmm. We don't necessarily need to be positive about everything because a lot of things aren't positive and I don't mind sitting in that. But at the same time, for me personally, I need curiosity or an openness in also like same as policymakers and same as probably technological innovation uh, enthusiasts. Mm -hmm. I want to look for the horizon or the solution or the way forward. And I want to be able to communicate that way forward. I also want to be aware of all of the risks that I'm seeing everywhere. And mm -hmm. it's very difficult to do at the same time, I think. And I think you're succeeding in that really well. One of the things that I found that maybe is the reason why I think it's working well here is that you wrote in your website the importance of curiosity. Mm -hmm. And yeah, I was really curious why why curiosity is such an important mm -hmm. thing for you also creating this organization, but maybe also personally. Yeah, that's actually a great point. We are not just working on digital issues with a feminist lens, but what we always want to highlight is the need to create like a futures approach mm -hmm. towards touching on these questions. And of course, like we, we tend to think like either in the dystopic alley or in the super utopian yeah. thing that mm -hmm. we're never going to reach anyway. So I'm not talking about these two, but really trying to think about what are like shared visions, shared head spaces where we can start to think more freely and kind of starting to have a short time where we can actually take a breath and leave all the struggles that we're in right now, not behind, but like let them rest for a second and shift gear towards thinking about the things we want to see in the mm -hmm. world. That I think is the, the positive thing. It's not about being naive, mm -hmm. but it's about we need the space mm -hmm. to create the alternatives. And I think that is also something inherently feminist. Like mm -hmm. feminist movements across the world, they they always created things and they always shaped their own structures and organization forms and, and um, even histories in a way. And that also meant that they could create their own futures. So I think like talking about futures mm. in that way is inherently feminist. Yeah. And that, I guess, plays into the whole factor of curiosity. Because to be, to be able to be curi curious, 
you can't be in a panic mode. No. You have to, to, to come to that level where you can allow yourself to be curious. So it's more like um, admonishing ourselves that we need to create these spaces for each other where we can become curious. It's not just, you have to be more curious. You know, it's not, it's not, that, it's no. not that kind of, oh, you're, you're lacking curiosity, <laughs> yeah. this can't work out. It's not about that, but it's really about um, making clear that um, th this is a necessary step in the process. Mm, I love that. That was a great explanation. <laughs> How can people become more active in relation to digital policy or technology in general and the role it plays in their lives? Mm-hmm. So what I really would like to um, make clear that I haven't figured it out and I'm still doing it. Mm -hmm. And I try to be open about what I know and what I don't know. And by that also encourage others to, to also start, you know, like, and I know that, that it can be super intimidating, especially when it comes to technology. I would like to like remind people of the fact that The tech companies have so many lobbyists in Brussels and North Capitals. Mm -hmm. And it's even like now going the other way around. Countries are sending envoys and ambassadors to the Silicon Valley to mm. have the fingers on the pulse. Mm, yeah. Isn't that, isn't that completely off? So we need a civil society and academic counterbalance to this kind of super weird relationship that has like established itself over the years and we need to we need to be loud and active and, and voice not just what we think is not right but also the visions that we have because I think the visions are really powerful because obviously policymakers often do not have them mm -hmm. I understand why they are in kind of they are in a reactive mode because also tech moves so fast But I think that's where we can actually come in and, and say, look, this is what we're working towards. Now let's prioritize. Mm -hmm. And maybe incentivizing data-driven innovation without any strings attached is not what we, want, what we want to do right now. So like to really check whether the policy debates are as important as policymakers <laughs> would like us to think they are. Mm -hmm. Maybe that is also like a, a yeah. good thing. So, hey, just reach out. I think there are many regional groups that also are really high impact and have lots of experience and expertise that they are willing to share um, and maybe just try to reach out. People like Elisa and organizations like Superlab are important. They are the glue between many initiatives that otherwise would not be able to take off. Elisa, but also her colleagues at Superlab and other data scientists, developers, academics, activists, and policymakers I met along the way are part of a larger ecosystem or community that understands that everything is in fact connected. And that through collaboration, we can actually decide how we want to relate to technology. I intended this episode to be the last episode of this series. I approached this project with a very open gaze, three main questions and a lot of curiosity. I was not sure if I could do it and if it would work and if I would snowball through the subject while also working on a narrative that could work as a podcast series. You can be the judge of that. For this project, I've traveled throughout Europe. I've talked to people in my hometown, The Hague, Amsterdam, Tilburg. I traveled to Brussels, Sheffield, London, Eckham, and multiple times to Berlin. Throughout my year, Berlin has been the place that really embodied an exciting future that I could already see and feel. 
My main aim was to find a way of engaging with the world around me that would help me think and that would help me further integrate my more philosophical ideas about technology in the way I also integrate technology in my personal life, starting with a simple app on my phone, my peer tracker. I wanted to examine my own and society's relationship with technology. I wanted to take a closer look at one case study. When I started, some people wondered whether I could make an entire podcast series about something small, such as a period app. What I have learned and what I've hoped to show in this series is that it is in fact a very big topic. Because to truly understand the role of a specific technology is to understand the way it is embedded in our society. And that is not small at all. Period apps were gateways to talk about something bigger, to talk about how we relate to technology. I think that relationships, whether they are between people, concepts, or our own relationship with a thing, cannot be examined by only reading literature. This was and still is a public philosophy project because we can only really grasp our relationship to technology if we together think about how we are connected and what it is that connects us. As I said, I intended this to be the last episode and in many ways this is an ending point. At the same time, I am very sure that this is not the end. I will take some time to reflect on this project and I will get back to you here. I already have some other things lined up that didn't fully fit in the structure that I had in mind, but they're also too interesting not to share with you. So stay tuned. Thank you very much for listening. I really, really mean that. This project has been incredibly meaningful to me. If you enjoyed the series, please share it with your friends, family and loved ones. I would love this project to live beyond me. For now, thank you so much for listening. This episode was made by me, Judith Zoe. A special shout out to everyone featured in this episode, Marie Kosrik from DRIP and Elisa Lindinger from SuperLab. If you want to learn more about their work or the resources mentioned in this episode, check them out on thedigitalperiod.com. The jingle was made by Christos Holtens and me, and this episode was again made possible by the Alfred Landecker Fund and Humanity in Action. I'm gonna have other thoughts when I listen to this one back, and I really like that. <laughs> Are you going to do like a meta episode, like about the the process? I am. I am. Nice. Yeah. I want to oh. do. I want to do the the making of the digital period. Yeah. To kind of reflect. Also because of the project itself has a lot of elements that are the same as the project yeah as well like how do i translate my own values in reaching out to people and talking to people about intimate topics how do i how do i deal with intimate stories that people share with me mm-hmm. um, even recorded or not recorded and how do i create a narrative that honors my own thinking during this process but also people's contributions and their own thoughts like these are all interesting elements that I also want to reflect on specifically, yeah. This is going to be my favorite episode, <laughs> uh, the, the, the making of. Can't wait for it.